We're the Monster Squad. If you don't recognize that voice right there, you'll recognize his face. Uh, he played Sean in the Monster Squad. He's the director and one of the producers of The Wolfman's Got Nards, the documentary for The Monster Squad itself. Andre Gower, how are you, my man? Uh, I'm doing good, RC. Thanks for having me. That was a fun little intro. Uh, uh, hopefully my voice sounds a little different than it does from back then. But, well, you're uh, not 11 knows? anymore. That's right. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Although you did hold up that Stephen King uh, T-shirt throughout the documentary. That's one spoiler for you, that if you drop 20 pounds, you could fit in again. Uh, thank you for being generous with the 20. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. The Wolfman's Got Nards, a great documentary about the making of and the following uh, almost to, like, Trekkie level of dedication from the fans for the Monster Squad. How does that feel for you that you went around the world essentially for the 30th anniversary of this docu of, of this film, creating this documentary and seeing the effect that you had on kids like myself back then? Because I told you in our last interview for Baby Frankenstein that we drove our third grade teacher running around screaming, "Wolf fans got nards." <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, and that's. It, we knew that was the focus of the documentary from before day one, really. And it all centers around the only reason that we're still talking about this movie, The Monster Squad, 30 some odd years later, is the fact that these fans connected with this movie and it impacted them in some way, shape or form. And they didn't let it die. And then when they had the chance to come together 10, 12 years ago, and, you know, make something happen. It just, it, and it had this amazing resurgence and that enabled me to go back out into the world as, you know, the kid from the monster squad and meet all these awesome people and hear story after story of what this movie meant to these individuals. And, you know, fast forward a couple of years after con you know, continuing hearing these amazing stories, they, they didn't, they didn't get old and they didn't get, boring they got deeper and more personal and more impactful and that's where the idea for a documentary came from and i wanted it to be about let's turn the focus around on the reason why we're still talking about this movie and why we're signing autographs at a theater or a convention these days uh it's these fans and it's their stories and i knew their stories were a story uh, you know, it, it hit me at one point and I said, that's something interesting because it's something unlike I'm seeing out there, you know, with other genre films or other, you know, pop culture, you know, classics. And it's, we love all the stuff that we love. I've never seen a fan base so connected, so impacted by a, just a, a singular film or a collection of things that, then Monster Squad fans are with Monster Squad. And I wanted to ask the questions why. And because it was fascinating to me. And boy, did, I got a lot more than I bargained for. And um, we had, the, the result is Wolfman's Got Nards, a documentary. <laughs> well, I love the documentary except for one thing and one thing only. Okay. Ryan Lambert. And I'll tell you why I'm mad at Ryan Lambert. And it's out of pure jealousy. So, Ryan, if you're watching this, this is on you. You went from 80s teen tiger bee heartthrob 
to Silver Fox. Like you didn't even have an awkward moment. Like what was your <laughs> right. awkward moment? Like transitioning to to formula as an infant and that was the end of it. <laughs> so no, I, it's out of pure jealousy. I don't like you. I never liked you. You know, and that's the closest to a Don Rickles impersonation I can give you. But no, Ryan Lambert was awesome. And to ease my nerves, it always helps to remind me that he was in Kids Incorporated. It always helps, doesn't it? <laughs> and I, that's, I think that's my favorite, my favorite thing. Uh, and, and you know what? He, you know, people, we all like to make fun and, uh, about it, but I mean, he actually like, you know, he, he likes Kids Incorporated. It's not the only thing. You know, he, you know, it's not the only thing he's done in his life. You know, he's, he's got Monster Squad, which I mean, he's Rudy. I mean, damn it. He's, he's the cool guy, right? Um, but no, he's, he's fantastic in the doc and he and Ashley were a trooper, uh, you know, cause we were going on these tours and traveling around and, you know, I, I dragged them a lot more places than they probably would have normally gone or wa- wanted to go. Uh, and I want, it was very important to me that I wanted them involved, uh, in the doc. Uh, to, so everybody could see them and connect with them again and they could connect with, you know, what we were trying to do. And boy, Ashley Bank and Ryan Lambert just, you know, are big parts of the documentary. They're huge in the documentary. Ashley looks like she's just so happy to be away from her child at that point, which I'm absolutely <laughs> teasing. Um, but noticeably missing, noticeably missing are Michael Faustino and Rob Kiger, Patrick and Eugene from the documentary. Uh, were they just unavailable or are they so far removed from acting at this point that it was kind of like, why would we be a part of something like this? Um, you know, honestly, it's a, it's a little bit of both. Um, you know, uh, Michael actually got out of acting at a very young age after he'd already had, you know, probably like an eight year career, <laughs> you know, so he, he retired, you know, when he was like 13 or so, I don't know. Um, but he's actually a very, uh, he's a hardworking, very successful sound engineer in the entertainment industry. So he works on, you know, giant shows like The Voice and America's Got Talent and or American Idol and stuff like that. He does those big kind of live shows and concerts and stuff. So he's doing stuff that I, I have no idea how to do. <laughs> you know, he's, he's a, he's a sound engineer. It's awesome. Um, so shows we've never I haven't heard seen of. much of them, huh? Shows we've never heard of. That's the shows we've never heard of. <laughs> And, uh, Robbie had actually at the time was a no, not, no having any contact, not, not being able to, you know, no connection, no correspondence, um, no way to, you know, kind of, you know, get in touch with and, and, and make happen. And then, you know, honestly, really with, you know, the doc, if you're, if you're on camera, uh, I, there, there's very, I would have loved to have them on camera because everybody wants to see them. Um, you, you know, Michael for a little bit, that's not his, that's not his thing right now. So, you know, we didn't want to, you know, push or press. Um, and, you know, Robbie just, we did had no contact with him for a while. Um, and really it was, you know, it'd be interesting to hear those stories of what they thought. Uh, but what we do ended up having, we have, we have a lot of people that were on camera that didn't make, you know, didn't even make the final cut of the documentary because it, it ended up getting whittled down to if you're on camera in this documentary telling your story and you had something to do with the movie, it had to, you know, in, you know, have some sort of impact or you're involved with, you know, kind of the, the, the current resurgence of it and comment on that. And I think everybody does a, a, a wonderful job of explaining, you know, that dynamic from their perspective. I would have loved to have those two in it. Um, it just didn't work out. Well, it's unfortunate, but hey, there will probably be a, a Wolfman's Got Nard sequel at some point, and they'll be in there, or you know, for the Ooh. 40th anniversary reunion. 
<laughs> okay, let's do that. Yeah. Oh, I'm I'm in. Look, there's there's still plenty of fans out there, and hopefully there'll be fans of this one. So now we make a dock of the dock. <laughs> okay, so here's the big surprise: was that for me at least, you got Matt Cardona, former Zack Ryder in the WWE and in AEW, to be in the documentary. Like that just surprised me. That's spoiler number two. We're not going to like give away everybody's storyline in this. But I'm sitting there, I'm watching, and I was like, Zack Ryder just popped up in, in the Wolfman's Got Nards documentary? All right, this is going to be interesting. How do you get, how do you get Matt in the, involved? You know, I think he had, I think we had met online, like on socials, and you know, he was a huge fan, and you know, so we just started kind of connect that way. And then we were, uh, Ryan and Ashley and I were going to a convention in Orlando, uh, called Spooky Empire. And I knew Matt had, uh, he had actually, I think he had just moved there or just bought a new place. And so he was based in Orlando. He was still, uh, st- still Zack Ryder, WWE at the time. And I said, Hey man, first of all, just come over to the convention, hang out if you have time, if you want to. Second of all, I'd love to sit you down and put you on camera and talk for the documentary. He was like, bro, I'm in for both. <laughs> and I was like, let's do it. And we had never met face to face and, you know, we, he was, uh, one of the first people that we, put, you know, sat down and put on camera. And it's interesting because he's one of the only people we have exterior. Like we have him outside, like at the hotel in Orlando. There's a water, water fountain behind him. And luckily the audio turned out good, but you know, but fit. And, um, we're still pals. Uh, I'm getting ready to do his podcast like in a couple of days. Uh, he's just a great guy. And, like we run each, uh, to each other at like San Diego Comic Con. Uh, he's a very busy guy though. You know, he's got an unboxing show and all this stuff. He's, he's very, he's very, he's, he's, he's very big, uh, in literally and figuratively. And, uh, he's left me, he's left me tickets for, you know, WWE before we came in LA and, uh, want to go ahead and hang out. So it was just one of those things that happened. I'm like, these are the type of people I want to show. It's not even a, a, a contrasting. And it's not even a, uh, a juxtaposition of different types that are fans. If you're in the fan mode in this documentary, I can't, we're all the same, whether it's Matt Cardona, whether it's April Hooper from Phoenix, whether it's Sean Robert from Virginia or Seth Green from every one of your favorite movies of all time. It's good. If you're talking about it, it's everybody's the same. If you're on camera in this movie, sans a couple people that pop in that are awesome faces and name because they set up, you know, kind of, you know, chapters in the, in the film or the overall context of what we're talking about. And, you know, we even got, you know, like Chuck Russell and Heather Langenkamp and, uh, you know, um, uh, Zach Galligan, you know, who just, they're awesome people to set up what genre is, what cult is, what fandom is. And then, you know, we, we let everybody else take it from there, but Matt's an awesome dude. Well, speaking of Seth Green, you have another shade of green in there and Adam Green, uh, with the Hatchet series and, and he's a great guy. I talked to him a couple of years ago when Hatchet 3 came out. And, yeah. you know, so you have like legends in the horror industry that are still praising this. And people had forgotten that Shane Black had wrote this movie and Fred <laughs> Decker was, was the director of this. Um, Fred seems perplexed in the documentary about the post success of the film from the home, from the home video market. Um, he made the reference of it's like shooting a basket and waiting 20 years for it to land. And so like, I'm not sure if he knows that he can enjoy it so many years later, or if he's still confused 
by the success afterwards because back then when we were kids, you know, if the movie died in the theater, we never heard from it again or, you know, it'd be shown at like some Saturday afternoon thing or Sunday afternoon on channel five or whatever local station would do it. Um, and speaking to Fred about it, what's it like for him? Like, has he finally been able to wrap his head around the success of the franchise or the love for the film all the years, years later when it didn't hit in the box office? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the Fred story with the connection of, He's the, with the film is he's the only one that has this particular relationship with he's the only one that can have it. You know, he, he wrote the story, he co-wrote the script with Shane and he directed it. So your name's on it. And when it fails, that's on you completely unfairly. I've never liked the fact, even back in the day that box office numbers on your opening weekend are the only barometer of success for a movie. That just seems stupid to me, especially being involved with one of the bigger examples out there of a movie not doing well in a box office, but having a larger group of fans and followers and love than you could ever possibly imagine. You know, I, Fred's always loved the movie. He likes the monster. He thinks it's a great movie and, and love it. He didn't, didn't understand or probably, you know, and he says he didn't like the reaction that it got because no one went. And I think it's unfair and it's not his fault. You know, he made the movie that people dug and everybody connected with. That's his thing. For reviewers to to not really like it, you know, uh, you know, uh, as a majority, and for you know uh, a studio to pull it or theaters to be like, we're not getting anybody. Uh, it, that's not his fault. You know, that has a lot more to do with timing of release, the rating it got, the reviews it upheld, the conflicted marketing campaign. So it's not his. It, it's not his fault. And I don't think he ever assumed it was his fault. But it's something, I think it's unfair that you go into director jail for something like that. And I, I, not just with Fred, but with other filmmakers that have gone into director jail for years and decades, uh, we're the only ones that lose. I mean, they lose too, but look, the, the, the us as an audience as a whole, we lose because there's so many great creators and filmmakers and storytellers that they're, they're still locked up in their jail cell. And yet we give other stuff to other people that may not be as good as they do. And we have to consume, you know, that content. I'm not poo-pooing their success. I'm just saying it's kind of unfair. Um, and, and watching kind of over the last couple of years and then having Fred sit down and actually do something with the documentary, you know, there was a time where that wasn't going to happen. You know, we weren't sure if Fred was going to want to sit down and actually talk about what we wanted him to talk about. And it, it, it took, it took a number of months. It took a number of, you know, time sending over some kind of edits and, you know, some, some short versions and some clips from what we had been shooting. And it got to the point where I think that he saw that what we were doing and the heart and the authenticity of what we were trying to do with the doc and the quality of what Henry and I and our production team were putting together. I, you know, I think that, you know, convinced him enough to, you know, we got to go over to his house and sit down for almost an entire day. And um he gets to sit there and tell a story. And as you can, you know, it's a conflicted kind of relationship with it, but he's energized and he's, he's enthusiastic and he's inspired to tell his story on camera. And that just really helps make this a complete documentary even better. Um It would have, it would have, it would have been a lot less, of a movie, if, you know, without Fred's involvement and his openness to sit down and, and, and tell how he feels about it. 
what it felt like to me with watching Fred is like a parent who has a child that's being bullied at school. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm still getting over a cough. Mm. And you've made mention to it, and the administration has still done nothing about it, so you still feel like your hands are tied with it. <coughs> so, but, I mean, when he went on those tours and, you know, sat in the theaters and saw the reaction, how did he handle it then? Because he's in the documentary with you guys doing that. Uh, for some things, yeah. it's uh, He wasn't on the 30th anniversary tour, but we've been to, you know, kind of packed house screenings. And, you know, sometimes, and he's been to conventions and, you know, and he's the only one that can, you know, can kind of oscillate back and forth of, of maybe some bitterness or maybe some celebration or some, Hey, where were you guys, you know, 25 years ago, you know, when this movie needed you. And I, th- I think we've gotten past that point of that kind of perspective. It's, Hey, I understand uh that. Cause I, you know, I had the same kind of feelings for a while. You know, it's, you understand it's like they're there and they're growing. And I, I, I personally, I'd rather really, it, it's neat. You can say this today because, you know, it's, it's benefit to you, but I'd rather be part of something unique and dynamic like this monster squad resurgence and this fandom and understand that these kids were always there. They just didn't know how to find each other until later on. And then when they did, wow. You know, it went, it went crazy. They lit the, you know, Fred lit the fuse at that, at, uh, uh, at that initial Alamo draft house screening in 2006. He lit the fuse. He's the one who answered the question, where's our DVD? You know, where's, you know, where's the blue? He's like, you're not getting it unless it's you. You're the only reason it's going to happen. So write letters, send postcards, you know, do, do something to make this happen. And you know what? They did. And that's because of Fred. Fred answered the question and told them what to do. And apparently they did it. And look what happened. I mean, you know, that movie had a complete second life and a resurgence, uh, found a new audience. We now have a second generation of fans because the originals are showing their kids now because it's been so long that they have, you know, five, six, 10 and 15 year olds now. And it's just crazy. Right. But I love, I, I love the honesty and th- the fact that Fred felt comfortable enough to sit down with me and, you know, with the crew and, and, and talk about it. Um, I can't speak for him, you know, any more than that. You know, he's, he's a great interview, you know, you, you know, hit him up and talk to him about it. Um, I'm sure he takes some time and, and, and sit down and talk about all the cool things he's working on now, because I, you know, over the last couple of years, it's been great to see Fred kind of have a resurgence of his own and, you know, circling back and working with people, you know, he got to, you know, he co-wrote the screenplay with Shane for the latest pre- for the Predator. Um, whether you like that movie or not, whatever you can tell, who cares? Like that's a giant studio movie that Fred got to work on. That's awesome. And that led to other things that he's currently working on now. And what's great about the doc and the connection between all the people is, you know, Henry McComas, who's, you know, the, the filmmaker that, you know, you know, headed up the production team that helped me make this documentary. And it's really his, you know, handiwork and everything here. Um, he now collaborates with Fred on projects and we all get to work together on things. And um, Fred became a Henry fan. And, you know, so that kind of blew this kid named Henry's mind that used to be, you know, a teenager when he found this, you know, VHS tape and a box upstairs in the attic said monster squad on it and became a monster squad fan. So 
it's, it's kind of these cool full circles, you know, stories. And I love the fact that Fred's, you know, working on awesome projects now and, and, you know, kind of has, you know, a, a fire lit under his world now as well. I'm not saying it's because of the doc. I'm saying it's just, it's just all this timing all happens to be happening at the same time, which I think is awesome. Right. And for people who don't know who Henry McComas is, uh, one of his most recent documentaries was the boy band con, the Lou Pearlman story. So yeah. if you were a fan of NSYNC and the Backstreet Boys and, 98 Degrees and all the post-New Kids on the Block boy bands that Lou Pearlman uh, founded, you know, uh, you know, Henry's a part of that. So there's your tie into Monster Squad and boy bands, thanks to Henry McComas. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> but yeah, no, Henry, Henry's uh, not only a very talented on the technical side of gear and filmmaking and editing, he's, he's a very good storyteller. He's, he's, he's a, he's a good writer. He understands how to, tell stories, how to make stories and how to show stories. And I got extremely lucky to team up with him on this because uh, what we see on the screen with Wolfman's Got Nards is um, me throwing a bunch of ideas and setting up a bunch of stuff for Henry and our production team, like Wes and Aaron Kunkel and, uh, you know, Shane Patterson and, and, you know, just throwing a whole bunch of stuff at these guys we have a very small production crew on this. I mean, it was a handful of people, four, four or five people physically making it a couple of people afterwards, you know, working behind the scenes like Eric Lukowski and stuff like that, that just got so enthusiastic. And I loved this kind of little squad that we had to make this movie about the squad. And you know, the doc is really me throwing out all this stuff and trying to, you know, get so much out there and in this, because I knew there's something there and then having these guys make it happen and, and, and pull the essence of the story of what we were looking for out. Uh, it was just a, a, a great process and, and a really cool journey to go on. Um, that sounds very filmmakery and, and, and lame, but it, it's true. It's, it's an experience. It's a journey. It's a trip. Um, in, in more definition of trip than, you know, than one. And these guys just put their heart and soul into it because they were all connected to it. They were all Monster Squad fans. They understood that dynamic. They weren't just guys that got assigned and I don't think they ever felt like they were doing a job, you know, working on this film. And, um, they, they've all said that, which, which is kind of cool. Well, that's a huge compliment in and of itself. But what I'd like to find out is take us through the genesis of making the documentary. Was it 2006 when, you know, Fred is sitting there and going, Hey, you guys want the DVD? Go ahead and write letters. And then you saw the letter campaign happening, the email campaign, or was it? you know, another moment like the 25th anniversary at San Diego and you saw the reaction to everybody and everybody jumping in line to getting a signed poster and the Blu-ray signed and everything else going on. Like what was the I think genesis it, of it all? Really the, the genesis is a culmination of all of that early stuff, right? It starts with the Alamo draft house screening in 2006 that was put on by Eric Vespi. And, you know, of course the Alamo, you know, there was one Alamo back then. And they found a 35 millimeter print. We didn't know what, what was going to happen that weekend. We sure as hell didn't expect to have two sold out screens back to back the Saturday before Easter in April. Uh, it, you know, they turned away people that couldn't get in. And so we just hung out and partied with them after. And that just lit the fuse. And then Fred mentioning, you know, you guys got to write it. You, you want a DVD? It's going to be, it's going to be your doing. That's going to happen. So you guys get together and you figure it out and you, you know, send letters. And then, you know, less than a year later, we're headlining a convention at, you know, Monster Mania. And we're like, what is happening? Like, what? how did this spark? Like, what's going on? And then we realized that Lionsgate's actually putting out a 20th anniversary DVD 
double disc thing like that day. Like no one told us. Like we, you know, Michael Felsher just showed up with a crew. Was like, hey, we're doing your stuff. We're like, who are you? What is happening? And so all of that stuff built up, and then the the DVD selling out, you know, within a couple of days and then the second run in a couple of days and third, you know, then it was out of print again, you know, everybody finally gets the monster squad on DVD and then they can't get it cause it's out of print again. So it just starts the cycle over again. And then a Blu-ray comes out and then another Blu-ray and we're going all over the country and all over into the UK doing conventions and appearances and, you know, screenings at cool art houses and cineplexes. But it was really, it was all that stuff leading up to, Hearing these stories from these fans over and over again of how this movie impacted them and why they connected with it on such a deep level that that will not fade, they will not let go, and how this movie shaped or changed their life or made them become who they are or – you know, just something that this is always my go-to. This is my comfort blanket. This is something because it was the movie I saw with my dad. The first movie I saw with my dad or the last movie I saw with my dad. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, it was stories like that, that we kept hearing of, you know, I met my wife because of this movie. I named my kids after you. It was like, this, this doesn't happen normally. Um, I mean, I'm sure there's a ton of Luke Skywalkers out there because of Star Wars. Like, you know, a lot of people name their kid Luke. Um, but, uh, you know, and, th- and that's a, you know, that's a weird, that's a, that's a weird thing to hear, but it's, it's kind of awesome at the same time. So the genesis of the doc was realizing after the cumulative effect of all these events and meeting all of these awesome fans and hearing these stories over and over again, they're all individual, they're all different. But they're all kind of the same. It's like something happened here. What is that? And these stories got more personal and more deep. And then I realized that those stories were a story. The genesis of the doc was not of, you know, we need a making of doc or, you know, we need a where are they now doc. And I was like, nobody wants, nobody wants that. Um, and we've sort of seen the making of doc in the double disc in 07. Um, and what it certainly isn't. And, you know, you can attest to this if we, if we did it right or not is it is not that here comes this spoonful of sugary nostalgia, you know, straight fan service doc. And then we bail out and we go home. That's not what this is. This is a, this is a, this is a story about those stories that ends up being a, a, a love letter back to the fans about their love letter of a life to this movie and how it's all connected and how it can impact people, whether it's Monster Squad or not. It could be whatever film because, you know, we work on that a little bit in the doc. It's not just Monster Squad centric. It's about whatever movie hit home for you and what's your comfort blanket movie and how did this movie change your life? Um, you know, when you walked into that theater or rented it from the video store or, you know, recorded it off HBO, that's what the doc's about. I wanted to turn the lens around on the people that are the only reason that we're talking about this movie that failed in 87 in the box office, but didn't fail in the guts and the hearts and the brains of the kids that saw it. And they're the ones that kept it alive for 30 years. That's a story. And I wanted to tell their story. And I think we captured the essence of that as best we could. No, you really did. Because quite often, a lot of the documentaries are fan service. A lot of it is like, ah, here's the nostalgia train, choo, choo, choo. And, you know, all aboard. And, you know, you feel it for a while, but you'll never see it again. 
Um, when you see these people's stories, like the guy who had every character tattooed on his arm, and then the final piece was you and Ryan actually inking him, which <laughs> would have terrified the hell out of me, but I was just like, all right, cool, man. You know, that's his thing. He got inked by two of the cast members. He got inked by Rudy and Sean. You know, it worked. And I think one thing that really resonate, resonated with everybody in this is because what? Fred and Shane were like 19 when they wrote the movie. So they, I, I mean, you know, it seemed like I think they were mid twenties, you know, when they first kind of, you know, young twenties when they first broke the story, they were in college. Yeah. I mean, it's insane. And, but I think that's why it works. That's why right. it's different than all the other kids movies of the eighties. Cause they weren't that far removed from what it was like to be a teenager in their neighborhood at the time. And they knew exactly what it was like and what it felt like and what it should sound and feel like and look like. And that's what I think was the main thing that connected with kids when they saw this movie, cause it had heart and authenticity and it was a little bit of danger. You know, this, this is a kids adventure movie that's got some serious shit going down in it. Sure. And you know, we, we've actually got a body count, you know, it's nothing fantastic. It's a supernatural movie. It's monsters are real, but and it's kid and the kids in peril. And that's always a like, eh. but we got a lot of stuff packed into that monster squad story and, you know, a family breaking up and disintegrating and like a burned out dad and, uh, you know, uh, bullying and, 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 and misfits finding their, you know, their, their group and, and learning how to get through junior high. And, um, it, it has all the great stuff in there, I mean, there's so much packed in the monster squad. It's insane. Oh, for sure. uh, it, without even getting into the monsters, you know, it's just that the story is, is crazy. And, but I think that's what connected with kids. I think it was that heart and that authenticity and that danger that the kids weren't serviced as being campy and being kid. Like they, they said, this is kids. And everybody said, that's me in my neighborhood. That could be me. I'm going to go be that. And, those are some of the stories you always heard. And I wanted to tell that. And the language was real too. I mean, you know, I was nine <laughs> years old when the movie came out, but you know, you remember calling a kid and excuse my language now as an adult. And especially in this generation, it's inappropriate, but you remember calling somebody a faggot as a pejorative. You remember calling somebody fat kid all the time or, you know, or all sorts of different, different phrases, you know, like playing the game, smear the queer, which nobody knew what the hell it meant, but that's what the game was called as kids. And then we grew up and like, that's what it was. No, it didn't. Yeah. Oh, that's not. Yeah. You're like, wait a minute. Um, but no, I mean, look, the, but the, that's how the, we talked in like 1987. So it, yeah. fit, you know, the time and the language was real. It wasn't like some 50 year old cigar chomper going, I think the kids sound like this today. And you, you, you hit on the exact visual of what I always comment on. Usually when you have a, a, a kids ensemble story, uh, that's supposed to be fun or funny. And it's usually probably at least 30 to 35 to, you know, 65 year old men trying to write and remember what it was like to be a funny kid. And he's like, well, let me see, you know, Jimmy Durante used to say funny lines, you know, let's, uh, you know, he used to say this joke and that's not going to land with anybody. Fred and Shane weren't that far removed. And look, they're still not. They're all pushing 60 and I'm pushing 50. And, uh, they're, you know, we're, I think we're all still connected to our youth and Shane still writes awesome stuff. Fred still writes awesome stuff that people super dig. And that's what lands and that's what endures. And I think that's what's pretty special here. And I think we try to show a little of that with those two guys in this, in this, in this film as well. And you did. And you could tell Shane still has love for this movie. It's still in his heart that like Monster Squad is one of his babies. I mean, yeah, he's known for Lethal Weapon. God knows his list of credits that we don't have time to go through till tomorrow. 
But yeah. you, know, you can see like Shane was so passionate about the film itself and the process of it. And Fred, like, again, being that father whose kid was bullied, but like, you know, is heartbroken because he can't do anything to defend him, but he still loves it, loves his child more than anything and will defend him as best he can. And then you guys in, in this and then the fans, that 15 year old girl in London who's just like, everyone tells me I should be modern. She's like, nah, I'm an eighties kid. And I'm like, you're 15. Yeah. What do you know about what we grew up with? That's right. You know, that sort of thing. Yeah. That's one of my favorite bits. And it's just, it, cause I think, like I said, the, the heart, the authenticity, um, the, the archetypes that are touched on and connect with people and that relationship, whatever they connected with, whether it was with the monsters or with someone in the squad or a combination of the characters, that's what makes things last. And that's what means you have a good story or something that you may not have been aiming for when you're typing on a page in 1985 or 86, when you're writing a first draft for the script, but boy, you, you hit it and it happens. And those are the things, you know, as writers or creatives that you may hope for, but you, I don't think you can plan for that. Or, you know, how do you write for that? And like, I just wrote the line that's going to be iconic in 20 years. <laughs> like, no, you know, no one does that. And look at the, look at the other impacts that this movie had just with what was on the page. And I mean, we, we tried to come up with, you know, a couple different titles for what the documentary would be if we were doing this documentary. And the only one that kind of came close was the squad doc. Uh, cause it's kind of fun. It's modern. It's current. Um, but that sounded like too much of a making of the documentary or making of the movie doc type of documentary. And really when it came down to it, the Wolfman's got nards says it. It says it all about why this movie connected with people because it was something no one had ever said or heard before. Uh, and it became probably the most iconic line in the movie. It happens to be Brent Chalem's line. Yeah. Uh, he delivers a couple of the best ones in, in, in the movie. Right. But then look, you know, and then endures. I mean, it's Wolfman's got nards. It's, it's, it's on shirts. It's on hats. It's on, you know, it's on people's skin. Uh, it, it, it's, it's in music. It's in videos. Um, it's been said a bazillion times and it's now a piece of, you know, written iconography. And then you even have something as crazy as something you're, but you're not planning for that. You're just writing a line of dialogue that you think is fun at the time. But then look at the Stephen King rules shirt. That was just a screen direction and a screenplay that, you know, uh, a costume designer has to go like, what do I have to go make? I have to go make a shirt and I have to iron on letters for this dorky kid. Like, oh, Steve, okay. Great. And it's, it's supposed to be a throwaway. It's just supposed to be a small character description of this kid named Sean, who, yes, he's 12 and we reads Stephen King and other kids think he's lame for it. But he's going to end up putting a group of people together that save your ass. But that shirt, who knew, you know, no one thought even when I wore that shirt that that was ever going to become what it became. And that's what's fascinating about the power of film let alone writing and visual imagery is because if you wrote the book that this kid wears the shirt, maybe it becomes a thing, but to see that shirt and the golden, you know, the, you know, the iron on patches, everybody related to that. And they go, I want that. And lo and behold, they started making their own damn Stephen King rule shirts. And I love, and not only do they make their own, but brands have made it. Companies have put it out. You know, you see the conventions, I had some for a while that people had given to me and I, I would turn around and give out. Um, but then people started reimagining 
the Stephen King rule shirt. So when you start making the Stephen King a different shirt based on the Stephen King, that means you have something iconic because now that's other people rules. It's other things rule. It's different colors. Like people are making their own, like I've seen black and purple ones. I've seen, you know, green and yellow. It doesn't matter. I've seen gray and blue ones. It, It doesn't matter if it's, an exact copy. It, it's become something bigger than itself. And who can plan for that? And that's the power. That's the power of good stories and good movies. And has there been a reaction that you know of from Stephen King at all? You know, I think people have hit him up way back in the day. Uh, I don't know if he's ever seen the movie. <laughs> I don't know. He may have or may not. Uh, he may not like it. Who knows? Um, look at Stephen King. You know, it, the movie may be too short for him. <laughs> Probably it's only 82 minutes and you know, his introductory paragraph to a book is about 82 minutes. <laughs> it may, it may not be his bailiwick. Right. Hey, um, who owns the rights to the movie now? Is it Lionsgate that owns the rights or is it Warner brothers or is it just out in the ether? Uh, it's, it's sort of all of that answer and above. Uh, I believe right now, if I'm correct, cause we had to deal with Paramount, we had to be a Viacom for, um, stuff dealing with the documentary. Um, it, it, it's always been a rights issue with Monster Squad. You know, why isn't there a remake or a reboot? And they were working on that for a while. And, um, you know, Rob Cohen and Michael Bay were remaking the Monster Squad for about five years and that ended up not happening. And, um, you know, why isn't there merch? Why isn't there an animated series? There's so much to do with IP now that everything and every brand and every studio wants franchisable IP. There's a giant franchisable IP or if you think about all the connection things you could do here uh that aren't necessarily you know tied down with anything. I, I love the 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 pre-story to what you know to our story. There's so much you could do after the fact. And I know Fred's always wanted to do graphic novels and comics on Monster Squad and or either with our you know our generation of kids or the next or the one previous or whatever. There's so much to tell there. It's always been a rights issue. Uh I think right now if you ask who owns the rights, someone will say we do. I don't know if they can actually provide evidence of that. I don't know. It's always this thing. So hopefully, you know, in, in the next year or so, you know, maybe that, you know, answer will get changed and um, people get to make cool stuff, you know, around, you know, story that people dig. Okay. Then pitch idea. Okay. And, and as we know, I have no power whatsoever in Hollywood <laughs> except for the cool people that I get to interview, but you've heard of Legion M because yeah. They make a lot of fan-based movies and fan-funded movies. Mm-hmm. And I've interviewed the president, the CEO, and the COO uh, of Legion M. If they, if we put you in contact with them and come up with an idea for a Monster Squad sequel, maybe they could help get the rights and we get Monster Squad 2, uh, Daughters of Destruction. And now, because, you know, <laughs> they're, hey, Dracula's gone for on for another sixty years at this point, sixty five years, but nobody knows where one or seventy of his daughters are. So, see now now you're now you're thinking like a uh, a multi layered story con- conceptualizer um, on on two different levels on the business side of it and on the creative side. Look, I you know I've met some of those Legion M guys and I I love that company. I think they do cool stuff. It was a great idea. Um, whether it's them or some, I'll always have a conversation with somebody, even if it has nothing to do with Monster Squad. I'd love to. So if, you know, put me together with them. I'll, you know, I'll go sit down and have a masked, masked up tea, you know, with whomever. Um, I, I think there is a cool, if we're talking about sequels, since you mentioned, I think there's, uh, 
I think there's some cool stories out there that, that could service that itch. It would have to be done right. It would have to be done, you know, with the right people. And I think Fred and Shane would need to be involved if it was going to be authentic and, 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 and come from the source. Um, you know, I always, you know, I, I tell some people sometimes, you know, like, look, right now there's a really cool sequel story that's on a laptop that was written in, a couple of years ago, you know, during this kind of overtime, during this resurgence and meeting these fans and, you know, see well before the documentary, you know, actually became a thing and then got made. And then, but it's been tweaked and um, it's a, pre- it's a pretty neat story. And I think what you do, if you were making a sequel, by the way, that laptop is this one right here that I'm pointing at. Um, the, uh, just in case anybody was wondering, I think it's pretty obvious, but it had nothing to do with being selfish. It had to do with being selfish of protecting the story. And if anybody was ever going to make a sequel to anything, let alone something like Monster Squad, I, especially in this case, I think you'd have to have the opposite mentality of studios and not worry about that giant wide audience and service the core fan base first and, and, and honor them first and foremost, you'll get a wider audience just because you make something good. But it's usually opposite of that. They're like, what's the widest audience we can get with whatever? Like, who do we need in it? Okay, great. Let's do that. Let's put this thing in. And we need some flashbangs and some zippity doos and some, uh, is Tom Cruise available? Let's put him in there. That's great. Uh, who's hot right now? Uh, what's, uh, what's her name? I don't care. Get her, you know, whatever. Let's find out because it gets, gets eyeballs. What's the story? Doesn't matter. We have zippity doos and Swiss mangs and, and, and Tom Cruise. Doesn't make a successful movie and it dishonors your fan base. And that's sort of, you know, suggested Legion I, M because of the way they did James, exactly. James and Bob reboot. And yes. then Mandy was crowdfunded and that had a huge out of nowhere. Nicholas Cage just box office boom. <laughs> so I was like, well, and maybe yet again, he, guys he comes out that. of nowhere. Right. Yeah. No. And that's, I was getting to, you know, sort of that kind of fan centric, you know, uh, kind of connection there, which, uh, you know, when you're a part of something or, you know, even, you know, have a connection to it, then it means even more. And then, you know, that it's not just kind of this cold fish that gets served on a plate. You, you know, you were in the kitchen, you know, kind of, you know, watching it being made or even, you know, flipping the pan. And I, I you know, th- those are great ideas. And I, you know, who knows? I'm not in charge of that. I would, you know, I'd love to be, um, I'd love to be involved in something that's cool, but you know, if, if it happens, they've got to invite me. And, um, but you know, there, there's a really, really cool story. That's a framework there that, you know, I'd love to sit down with the guys and, um, the guys being, you know, Fred and Shane, just, you know, I, I've never sat down and told them, told them it, but, um, we, we've alluded at it sometimes and talked about it. We just haven't sat down and, and done it. Cause it, it's about a, uh, it takes about 35 minutes. <laughs> and cause I literally go like, you know, kind of like scene for scene. I don't go shot for shot cause it's not a screenplay. I go see, I go kind of like, uh, chapter by chapter. Well, please invite me to that pitch meeting because this I got to hear. Oh yeah, yeah, I'd love. Or we, I shit, I'll yeah, we do it private. I'll tell you, it's. Uh, I'll I sign an can... NDA. It's all right. <laughs> no, I've actually, I've actually had that done when I talk to people. It sounds icky, but you gotta do it. No, um, uh, but no, I, I, even... I think a sequel and a and a and a story. I love prequels. I mean, I think the story. I think there's so much fun here. Look, Dracula was walking around for a hundred years because he got foiled in 1887. Uh, but he kind of won, but he didn't, he just didn't get killed. He, you know, he made it out. So he's been walking around for a hundred years and then a bunch of kids get in his way. That's why he's so pissed in our movie. Right. Like, I think that's why Dracula's so mad. Cause he's like, I've been waiting a hundred years. Who are these, 
meddling right. kids in my way. You know what? Right. The Scooby Doo gang shows up. You know? Yeah. Here's some, uh, here, here's some dynamite for you and, uh, have fun in your treehouse when I blow it to smithereens. Uh, and then now I can go on with my business. I've been waiting, you know, 99.9 years to, to make happen. Uh, and then we, we, we foil it for him. I, you know, what was he doing in the fifties or like the 1920s or like, those are great stories. Um, I like to think he was like hanging out during the Panama Canal being built and that's where he got his dynamite. You know, he like he just stole a bag from that or something. Uh, he's been carrying it around and or put in a storage locker, you know, in, in Van Nuys for, you know, 70 years or something. Um, and who knows, you know, he's, yeah, I got 70 brides or, you know, whatever. And, uh, other legions of, of, of demon like or monsters that he can call from. But uh, the first time he just, you know, the only ones that were available in 80s, 87 were, you know, the, 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 the crew that we got. And he's like, oh, I should have called the other team, you know, something because, you know, these guys. And that traitor Frankenstein, you know, or Frankenstein's monster. Yeah. They always correct me on that one, but, uh, <laughs> but you can bring back the monster's bride. You can bring, you know, you could bring in uh, a she wolf at some point. Like I said, RC, there's a really, there's a cool story on, on a page. I know, like you gotta, I there's, yeah, go deeper. There's some good stuff there. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I think if you're doing something like a sequel, I, I think a remake fails. Um, if you're doing, cause you can't remake this movie. Uh, if you're going to do a movie with a bunch of kids and monsters or demons or whatever, like we've seen it, like don't call it Monsters Watch. Just create something cool and put it out and call it something else. Cause I think it would land short. Uh, and I think the fans would be not happy. Um, uh, you know, a continuing story, a prequel, definitely a sequel. You know, if we're involved in it or not, that would be rad. I think it also obviously has to be a passing of the torch type scenario because now your story can continue to go on. Um, you know, and I think the power of our movie was the fact that the kids were the only ones that knew what was going on, the only ones that knew how to defeat it, and the only ones that had the balls to step up and do it. And I think that would carry on, you know, in further stories. And, um, like I said, there's a great story written on it. But like um, I even see like in the tra- like the opening of the trailer is Rudy opens the door, realizes it's you, goes nope, and closes the door. <laughs> and like that's just the beginning of the trailer, and then from there on goes the rest of the adventure. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um there's there's a little of that. There, you know, uh, especially in the you know, in the in the fun thing that uh I'm alluding to. Um, but we have to shave know, Ryan's head. That's, that's uh, you, you don't have to. Time is doing that. Time is doing that. No, come uh, on. I saw that silver fox thing, man. Come on. That's unfair. We only shot him from the front. Oh, okay. um, it's a- <laughs> I blow out both my knees and ankles and get fat from all the years of combat sports. Here's Ryan look, uh, looking like a million bucks. Yeah, but you know what? Ryan Lambert always has been and always will be just fucking cool. So it doesn't matter, right? You know, he can he can sit there. <laughs> And, and, and not even give a rep and be like, yeah, he's still, he's still got it. Um, and I've got plenty of photos and, and, and video to prove it. Um, but yeah, you know, there's some fun stuff, you know, that you can do with it. And Rudy's probably a little different than you thought he'd grow up to be. And, um, you know, actually I, I, uh, you know, in, in this story, there's, a, a, a it open, you're talking about opening, it opens up and it gets very real and, it gets, it gets very real very quickly. And, um, you know, it, it services sort of, um, you know, a tribute to Brent and the character of Horace and, um, you know, and then it, it's, it's, it gets real very quick. And, and I think that would be awesome because I think yeah. that sets, you know, what a great cold open, um, that I haven't explained to you yet. <laughs> well, you did make us cry in the documentary with revealing how Brent passes away and how, 
it was an avoidable situation that just like left everybody a wreck. I mean, as, as fans of the film and remembering Brent and other things that he did, you know, commercials and stuff, like you could see that he was a real chipper, happy kid. Mm. And even like his early adulthood photos, you could just see that he's beaming with happiness. Yeah. And, you know, you talk to his ex-girlfriend and you talk to her mom and, and the family and everything else and just what they lost. Uh, makes us cry for them and feel for them. Um, how difficult was it filming those stories? And were you told anything that you felt was either too personal to share about Brent from that perspective or something that they had shared and said, you know what, let's pull back a little bit. We shouldn't really like reveal that aspect. N- not really on, did we get anything that we didn't think we should use or or reveal we were very very aware that this was their story to tell no one else can tell it could i have sat in my chair and my you know corny interview set up you know in in, in the movie and, and explain the brent story yeah i sure could have could ryan yeah could ashley absolutely should we have no it's it's not our story to tell uh, unfortunately, Brent passed way too young. He was just going to go to law school. And unfortunately, you know, his mom, Betty passed years before the, you know, actually even before he passed. And then his dad, you know, died, you know, shortly after. So there was no more of his immediate family to get the story from, uh, that we, you know, that we know about, but we had gotten in touch with, like you said, uh, Rachel, who, you know, was a lifelong friend and, and girlfriend of Brent's, you know, during their teenage years and her mom and Barbara, who was another family friend, you know, it's, you know, you grow up in a, in a community and you have your friends and your, your, your friends' parents are kind of your pseudo parents, you know, your, your step parents, you know, if you will. And they're the ones that knew him the best and knew him the longest. And so I thought that they're the ones that should tell the story. And they were amazed that someone was calling to, you know, to, to talk about Monster Squad, you know, 30 years later, let alone to explain, you know, cause they didn't really know the resurgence that much. And, uh, you know, cause these are all, these are older, you know, these are older grandmas, you know, they're not on the, you know, the, the Twitter at the Comic Cons. And we, we just sat them down and got comfortable and, uh, they told the story and their experience of growing up with Brent. And, you know, you said it best. It's like, you can't look at him without seeing like just kind of this, you know, awesome, happy energy, you know, coming out of this, out of this human being. And it's, it shows that in monster squad too, you know, not just, it's not, that's not an act. I mean, that's just Brent and, you know, to grow up and, and end up passing away at a, at a young age is obviously it's tragic, but you know, you mentioned a little bit and I, you know, like I said, I don't get too much into it. You know, I let people watch it and understand it and let that family tell the story. Um, when you look at it, it actually, it didn't have to happen. It wasn't, you know, an, an, an unavoidable thing that really hits you in the gut. And it's tragic that he's not around, obviously anymore, but to go back and be like, but he could be, it makes it even more you know, sorrowful because he's everybody's favorite character. Yeah. Rudy's the cool kid. He's bitching. Sean's the, you know, the, 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 the leader and put her put the band together and, and, and tell her what to do. And, 
Um, you know, Phoebe's the hero of the story. We get that. That's amazing. You know, our five-year-old girl is the hero of our story. And, but man, let me tell you, Horace is everybody's favorite character because a lot of people relate to Horace and he's got the best character arc in the movie and he comes up and, you know, he's the one that literally gets beaten down in the movie and he's the only one, you know, he's one of the only ones that stands up at the end. And that, that made an impact on kids. And the fact that Brent, who played Horace, can't meet the fans today, that's a loss on both sides because I understand what it feels to be in front of these fans or a theater full of, 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 of audience and just get that love and that energy. It's amazing. I want him to experience that, but he can't. And I want the fans to meet Brent and they can't. And I don't know what to do with that. And so I basically just say, I, you know, when people, I was like, I, I can't, I can't change that. Could I, or would I, if I, ah, damn right. I would. Cause I want both of those to experience what's been going on the last 10 or 12 years. We can't, how do we, how do we acknowledge that? How do we service it? We treaded very lightly, you know, getting in that, but with, but with purpose, cause we wanted to show everybody. And um, it's one of the most impactful parts of the, of the documentary. And, and it, it's a gut punch because like we said, we find out that he could have been around for a lot longer and it was avoidable. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to clear up any misconception and I don't care if this is a spoiler. It was not a drug overdose. If anyone's like, cause you know, people oh, jump to automatically like, yes. Oh, it could have been this. It might've been a drug overdose. It could have been suicide. It could have been this. It's no, none no, it's of compl- completely opposite from all of that. Yes. Yeah. So please don't think that any of that happened to Brent. It was none of that. It was mm-hmm. just something medical that could have been avoided. And that's, right. the, that's what we're going to leave it with for, for everybody to watch because I yeah. know how people are and they're like, Oh, well, he died young and they don't want to say how overdose, suicide, yeah, right. AIDS, cancer, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, go to like the Not worst extremes. And those are yeah. horrible ways to die. But the way Brent died is is a gut punch because it shouldn't have happened that way. Mm-hmm. So that's what I want to clear up for everybody. That's going to have a misconception if they don't actually watch the documentary, which they should. Yeah, no good call. Thanks RC for pointing that out. And that's absolutely, that's absolutely accurate. Um, and yeah, you know, I don't, you know, let, let's not, uh, it, that's uh that's one of the lesser lighter notes, but <laughs> so let's, 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 we'll, 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 we'll absorb that and then let's move, we'll move on to lighter tones and, and more fun. But okay. Here's a lighter tone, man. You yeah. are a happily married man, which I am a bit jealous of and commend you for because, you know, Still single and, but I'm enjoying it actually because I can leave a cup on the counter and realize that I'm the one that left it there and not wonder what the hell happened to anything. <laughs> um, two things in regards to your wife. The first time she saw Monster Squad and then how her reaction was with you making the documentary because making a documentary isn't easy and it can be taxing on a relationship. You know, they say like, uh, marriages struggle through home, uh, home remodels, finances. And in this case, if you're in the arts, making a documentary. <laughs> oh, that's like a, that's like a triumvirate of, uh, well, let, let me tell you, we've done all three <laughs> and she's still a trooper. So, um, she had seen the monster squad. She had known about it, you know, obviously. And then, you know, we, you know, we met and we ended up dating, you know, you know, living in different states for years. And then uh, we've been married for 
I don't even know. 11 years now? Yeah, I think it's 11 years. Uh, she is, uh, she's pretty rad. She's, I mean, she doesn't give me any slack, nor should she. Um, I, you know, she's, she's super intelligent. She's super creative. I've leaned on her for, you know, a lot of help with, you know, during stuff, if it's just feedback or ideas. Uh, hell, she used to, she was the, she was the, the, the force of inspiration or <laughs> that's a nice way of saying you guys should be doing this podcast and that finally got Ryan and I off our asses to do a podcast. And then I'll be damned. She didn't produce it and do all the technical shit involved with it and knocked it out of the park. And then she tried to show me how to do it so I could take it over. I was like, ah, you, you're way too good at this. She's a, she's a very creative, but intelligent person understands both sides of the game. And, um, you know, very ahead of the game in marketing and, and, and things like that. So she, she understands what's going on with this, but she's also not, the type of individual that, you know, is like, you, you know, who left this cup here or, you know, get out of, you know, my house. And we have a very awesome kind of unique relationship where we're, we're a good duo and boy, we can sit in the same room and be within 10 feet of each other for hours at a time and not get tired of each other. And then we can also just go on and do our own things for an entire day and not see each other. And it's not, it's not a bad thing. It's uh you know, it's very interesting. And then when you're traveling a lot and, and doing, look, I, I guarantee you, she enjoys when I'm gone more than when I'm at home uh, or we're in the same space. But, uh, you know, she's like, Oh, you're going to make a document. Have fun. Bye. <laughs> it's like, that's awesome because we're here with the cat and I've got my computer and my shows and my big T and like, I'm great. Call me from the road. <laughs> but, um, no, it's, she was, extremely supportive. She helped me out at the very beginning of it with some creative stuff and, you know, getting the deal done. And, um, she, she actually made my pitch deck for the doc and it's fucking amazing. Uh, and I've asked her to, you know, help with other stuff like pitch deck. And she's like, you can't afford me. I was like, I know I can't, your work's too good. I definitely can't afford you. Um, for, for your skill and what you do, I certainly can't. It's like you, you would, you would be way too, she's way too creative and way too good at what she does to, to even think about putting a dollar amount on it. But she's been extremely supportive and she celebrates it. And, you know, she, she's a, she, she's a fan in a different way. You know, she, she likes to see, you know, all of us succeed in, in this endeavor. Um, you know, whether it was another show of mine or whether it was short ends that, you know, I created and Ryan and I, you know, uh, co-hosted and we got to celebrate shorts and short films and, and, and short filmmakers. I mean, not filmmakers that are not tall, but they make shorts. And, um, and, and then the doc was a giant, a giant endeavor that took, you know, it took us a, you know, we, we made this doc in a very short amount of time. There's a lot packed in there from starting cameras rolling to our first film festival was right at 12 months, which seems very, very short. When we tell people that have ever endured in making a documentary, we crammed 50 terabytes of footage, whittled it down to 90 minutes and festival at our first festival within a year of our first day of camera rolling. And that's just a testament to Henry and the crew and all those, these, cause we were editing in real time, but we were creating a documentary in a new type of way. Like, you know, and this doesn't play like a documentary, it plays like a narrative kind of story. And that's all these guys, you know, we were cutting in real time as we were on the road, Wes Caldwell and air, you know, and wet and Henry, they're in the back of a minivan or in the back of an airplane actually doing cut selects because we have to get this done because we're on the road. we got to dump cards and get them, you know, get them cleared. So what are we going to keep and transfer over to a hard drive uh, and made the movie as we shot it. 
And then Henry went in a room and put it all together after, you know, in a couple of months and, uh, it, it just came out amazing. Um, That's but she loves to, you know, for still talking about my wife, you know, she loves to see all of the, the crew and the guys that were involved in this. We're all pals. We're all friends. We support each other. And, you know, and I, I think we're happy. We're all happy that the movie's finally coming out because we had a little bit of a delay. <laughs> Uh, having it done in 12 months and in the festival all at once is completely unheard of. Like, Oh, it was insane. Yeah. It sounds absolutely like it. insane. And look to shoot that much footage. Cause we had multiple cameras rolling and we were on the road constantly or in the studio doing stuff literally every week for 10 months. And, um, you know, even we were still shooting stuff at the very, very end to plug in at the, at, at the, at the, at the final kind of, you know, version of it. It's insane. Uh, well, beyond, beyond the insanity and leaving me at a loss for words, I have to ask, you did 17 days in a row. I think 17 days in a row or 17 days in a month. Uh, yeah, no, that on that, uh, on the 30th anniversary Alamo draft house tour, which we didn't know was happening when we started development and production of the documentary, I had ended up putting that together with the Alamo, uh, kind of after the fact. So, so fortunate that that ended up happening because it became a major event that we also got to document. And that wasn't on the original kind of list of things that was going to happen. And boy, am I glad it did. But yeah, that was 17 days. It was 17 cities in 17 days. We started in San Francisco and ended in Virginia. (laughs) And it was planes, trains, and automobiles. And when we say 17 cities in 17 days, that's a crazy schedule, but it wasn't just one screening a night. Half of those had multiple screenings. So we had to do an intro, show the movie, do the Q&A, go outside, the new theater comes in, do the second Q&A, do the thing, and then go out in the lobby and sign for every – and it was it was constant. And – about half of the locations, at least half the locations had more than one screening. So we were showing like we had 17 cities, but we had 25 or 26 shows in 17 days. It was like a crazy rock tour with Ryan, Ashley and I and Ashley's 16 month old baby in tow for the entire 17 days, which was awesome. And we just, we just made it happen. We just made it work. At the same time, I had the production crew with us following us everywhere on that tour and shooting awesome things. And, you know, you can't, you can't script that. We just got great stuff. You just never know what's going to happen. Like it, it sounds fun in concept, but we're both in our forties now. So at, in our twenties, it would have felt like nothing. Is it like yes. you get to like day 13 and you're like, okay, we're in Chicago, for example. Yeah. You got to make um, sure. Yeah. <laughs> You don't want to have one of those spinal tap, hello Cleveland yeah, moments. Right. But, you know, at, what city at, am I? <laughs> right. And you get there and you, you realize that it's a triple feature at, at this point. Like how, how was the excitement still there? And how are you not just completely running on fumes and wanting a nap? Well, that's not necessarily untrue with all of that. that that's all true. Uh, you are running on fumes. You do have that Cleveland moment every once in a while. Um, but I can go in task mode and kind of, you know, get through all of that. 
Ryan and Ashley and Ashley's bait. I mean, you know, I, I just super appreciate that they one wanted to go on that tour and two, that they allowed, you know, cameras and my, you know, microphones to be stuck to them every day, all day almost and cameras following them around for three weeks straight while we're trying to travel and go through airports and being chased by hurricane Harvey for four days. Um, and, and then, so it's, it, yeah. Do you need a nap? Yep. You sure do. Um, do you get your nap? Nope. Not really. <laughs> Cause some of the times we had to go to the theater early to get ready or just to eat. Uh, but we also had to pre like everybody in that tour that went to the theater got a signed mini poster. Uh, this is the 30th anniversary tour. So the, they, the Alamos reprinted like the Australian one sheet because it's the only poster Phoebe's on for some reason. And so we'd have to go like, okay, uh, we're in Dallas. How many, uh, how many tickets? And like, well, right now we're at 208. So we have to sit there and sign 208 posters because everybody that came in gets one. And then like, actually we, you know, we just add another 20 more. So like, okay. So we had to do that for an hour or two hours before every show and then eat dinner and then go do the intro Q and a, your only downtimes when they're playing the movie, uh, unless it's overlapping in two different theaters and you're doing the Q and a over here and then, or, and you just did the intro over here. It was insane. And then of course I had the crew with me. So I had to, I had to turn off the appearance kind of, uh, uh, you know, button and go into like producer and director mode and deal with the guys and let them, you know, kind of say this, you know, this is what we need today. Let's do this. What can happen? But the freshness of it, Ashley and Ryan, and I'll include myself in it. We find a way somewhere to be really good at being, being fresh and energetic because over the years, and this is the, the inspiration for the documentary is we understand what it means to these fans. And even when you're at a convention, you've got 15, 20 people lining up, waiting in line to meet you and take a photograph. You, by the time you get to person 15 and there's like six, I'm like, I can take a break after this person because there's no one there. But when you get to 13, 14, 15, you can't slack off. That might be your 13th person in the last 25 or 30 minutes, but this is the first time that person's meeting you. And we, we figured out or, or realized years ago that you, you shouldn't and you couldn't and you can't really slack off because it's fresh. You, you, it should be a fresh experience and we don't get to spend enough time with the fans one on one that we do. If all you've got is 90 seconds or three minutes, it needs to be a good 90 seconds or a good three minutes. And I think all three of us and the rest of the, I think, Look, Ashley and Ryan were you know, troopers over the convention years and, and the appearances and definitely on this tour of doing just that because they knew what it meant to these fans. There wasn't any sort of like, you know, obligation to me or, you know, kind of, you know, contractual thing like being in the document. It wasn't like that. They, they enjoy that interaction and they are awesome with the fans and the fans are awesome with us. And you you just make it new every time that someone comes up to you. It's a new experience for them. So it's a new experience for you. And, you know, I get, I get a little annoyed at, you know, you know, celebrities or actors or, you know, whomever's doing stuff. If you're doing an appearance and you're, you just have no energy and you don't want to be there, then don't be there. Because if you're not trying to make that experience for that next person, as new as it was for the first person, then you're doing it wrong. That's just how I feel. I could be completely wrong, but I think Ryan and Ashley feel the same way. We try to knock it out as a, as a group, as a squad. And, and I, I think it works and it shows in the doc because 
that was 17 cities in 17 days. Yeah, but that was more than one show every night. And we had to get up and boogie the next morning and go to the next state or the next town. And sometimes you're on an airplane. Sometimes you're on a train. Sometimes you're on a, in a minivan. And like I said, being chased by Hurricane Harvey all through the Texas swing. And then you get crazy ideas from the director of this documentary. And I knock on, you know, the producer and main filmmaker's door, Henry. And the director goes, hey, man, wouldn't it be great? We're in Corpus Christi. The Gulf of Mexico is right here. Let's get up at sunrise and see if we can get a sunrise shot coming up over the water of the Gulf of Mexico. And Henry's like, great idea. Let's do it. <laughs> I really want to go to sleep, but let's go do it. So he and I got in the car. We woke up at like 4.30 in the morning, drove down to the coast, found a spot, chose a different one, moved. I thought we were going to miss it. And Henry pulls out the gear. We get the tripod. We bring the camera over there, make sure we don't drop it in the water. And we set up out on this little rocky point and waited and put the stop motion on and put the regular on and be like, and I'll tell you, that's one of my favorite things in the dock is because we got up in the morning and saw that sunrise shot and we ended up using it in a perfect, you know, perfect situation in the story. And it's beautiful. And I'm like, you know, if I, I, we could have been tired and said, we don't need that beneath, but we're too tired. That pays off right there. And I mean, there was a, there was a cloud on the horizon that like apparently someone called central casting and got the perfect cloud and put it right out there for us. Little did we know that was like the, the, the beginning of like, you know, a nice little uh, hurricane coming, but, uh, cause Corpus got hit the next day while we were in, I think Laredo and then we went up to San Antonio and it was kind of, and then we got hit with it when we ended up in, in Austin, but we were just in Houston. And then went from Houston to Corpus Christi, Laredo, San Antonio, New Braunfels, then Austin. And that was the Texas Serene. And then we were supposed to fly out of Austin, but we couldn't because the weather was so bad that we had to drive to Dallas. And so I drove the minivan with everybody in it out in the outer bands of Hurricane Harvey like this for three and a half hours about the hydroplane off the highway and uh, with the crew behind us. And it was crazy. Wow. Uh, there's one one more thing I wish that you had put in the documentary. And... There's one fan who, whose name slips my mind at this point, but he's kind of, he's basically a historian and he has copies of Monster Squad in multiple languages. Sean Robert. Thank you. And what I would have loved to have been able to see if the videos were, were playable or the VHS cassettes were playable is to hear you and Brett say kick him in the nards and the wolfman have nards in like French, Portuguese, Spanish, Italian, so on and so forth from that collection. Uh you you are correct that 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 would have been a great supercut uh to put together. Um I don't know if Sean would have let us have the have all his collection to actually run through a machine uh but he probably would have because he is um He's one of, honestly, one of the individuals of why there's not only a doc, but so much cool stuff out there because he's been very active and, um, you know, has this collection and he's always just been a, a huge supporter. And then he started collecting stuff and he, th- you know, his big collective thing or collectible thing is he wanted a dead media from every country that it played in. And he's, he's almost got it. He may be done now, but he still, you know, he searches and finds them all the time. And yeah, that's a great collection. He's a great person. And then talking about tours, you know, we finished the doc. We did our festival run, ended in, Oct- ended in October of uh, last year. And I set up another Alamo Drafthouse tour just with the documentary. It was supposed to be the announcement of the deal and distribution thing of the previous deal that actually didn't happen. And so that's where the big delay is. 
And we got to, I, now I went on, we, we went to 22 cities with the doc in 22 days. So I just repeated and Henry went with me on that one. So we just kind of recreated it almost. We went to some of the same Alamos and went to a couple different ones. But what was cool is we got to show Sean Robert and Sean Decker when we were on the other tour and we went to the house and they got to see the movie in a theater with everybody. And that made it special for them too. But yeah, I think you're right. That'd have been a great thing. Maybe Sean will pull those things out and, and make his own super cut of, uh, Le Wolfman's got the bulls or something, you know, I don't, you know, whatever it's going to be in, in French and German and, uh, and, 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 and I, I love his Israeli VHS. He's got like one from, if he's got Turkey, I mean, he's got them from all over the place. It's insane. It's awesome. That would be a fantastic super cut. Yeah. Uh, with, with all of that, like, Okay, so, you know, I, I've talked to Trekkies, I've been to the Star Trek conventions, I, I've mm. talked to cast members from various Star Trek properties. Of everybody that either was featured or not featured in the documentary, who stood out the most to you? And who came the furthest to the London screening? And who also followed you the most to the most cities in the 17 days? I know there was a couple people that went multiples. Um who stood out that's in, that's in the dock as we met them and, and, and went around. I mean, we had known Sean prior. And so weaving him into the dock was just a no brainer. So that was a given, but we didn't know what a great interview we would get. And, you know, he was, he was, he was very nervous to be on camera because that's not his thing. Uh, but we invaded his house and went up in his room and, and, and uh, so, so Sean, that's a given. I would probably say the thing that probably surprised us the most was, uh, Sean Decker's story. And we actually met him on the very last day of the 17 city tour, the 30th anniversary. And he was in a, lo- a line of probably 185 people at, at, after the screening in the Winchester Alamo, which is one of the raddest, uh, you know, Alamos. I, I love, the, I love those guys up there. And he came up and shook hands, got a photo signing stuff and told me his story. And I misheard his story, either because I was exhausted or I wasn't paying attention like I should be, but I listened to it and I was, I, I stopped him at the end. I went, wait a minute. Tell me that again. What did you just tell me? And he told me again and I'm holding up the line. I'm waiting and I'm like, I said, that's a very personal story. Would you have any interest in sharing that on camera? And he's like, for your documentary. Cause we announced that we were doing a documentary on that tour. And he said, I would love to tell you my story on camera. And so I said, guys, hang on a minute. I'll be right back. And Henry and the crew, they had put all the gear away. This was the end of the night. It was done. I said, Henry, I've, you've got to pull the camera back out. And he, this is Sean. He's got a great story. And you got to take him around while I finish the rest of these people. He's got a story to tell. We need it on camera. And I didn't know how that was going to impact those guys, but they weren't ready for the story that they were about to get told. And... I didn't even really absorb it until I saw it later. And I was like, I, but now we're friends with Sean Decker and his story is very personal. I don't want to give it away. I want him to tell his story. I want people to see it in the doc. It's not a shameless, like I'm not going to show it to you, reveal anything. It's his story to tell. It's, it's one thing that I've become very aware of that. I, I want people to tell their stories because it's theirs to tell. I don't, I don't need to be a third party, you know, um, you know, resubmitter of something. And it's super personal. It's super touching. 
it's probably one of the things like you asked that, that surprised us the most because we weren't expecting one to meet this awesome dude, but to also hear his story about when he was 14 years old, what happened to him and how this movie helped him through that time. And you're not going to be ready for it. You're not going to guess it, you know, unless you, unless you've seen it and it's, it's, it's touching and it's heartwarming and he's an awesome dude and we're pals to this day. And I'm, I'm glad we get to share this experience with him because he, he shared his experience with us and it just, it's not an either or a one, one benefits from the side. It just, it just worked. And he's a part of the fabric of, of, of this story now. And I think he enjoys that. I think coming from the furthest, oh man, I know people who drive from, you know, states away or take the train to come in. I know when we were in London, we had a group of guys from Scotland come down for the screening, which is, you know, not close. Um, I do know, boy, there's a hand, handful of, uh, of, of people that drive two, three states away, just, you know, come to the screening and, 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 and get a picture and, and tell you their story, which was just fascinating. And then I got to tell you, you know, one of my, they're good friends of ours now, which, which is what's cool. But, uh, one of my favorite people on the planet is, uh, April Hooper and her husband, Matt, um, who I get to see in a couple of weeks, actually, hopefully. And, uh, they live in Phoenix. And we met just off this weird kind of chance and had nothing monster squad related. And then we just became friends and she, she's on camera in the doc telling her story. So it was a whole bunch of things like this was something that was set up out of the blue This that, you know, we wanted, that's what these fans are about. And that's what the story's about. And I love the Hoopers and I love the Sean Deckers and I love the Sean Robears. And, you know, I love the, you know, it's Christina Marie, that's her great handle because she, she does this awesome cosplay stuff to, to, you know, to hear store, her story when we met when she was a teenager. And, you know, that was a number of years ago and her family story and, you know, stuff like Danny Foster, you know, getting inked, uh, you know, with all the monsters and Ryan and I, you know, having, you know, get a chance to partake in that. You're not going to hurt Danny Foster or his feelings. That dude's too hardcore and badass. Um, but you know, we got to drive, you know, we went on a long trip to go to his house. He lives up in, uh, a Tascadero area and that's like three hours and change. So I had to lug the crew up there and go sit in his garage and do his, do- you know, document his story. And, you know, that's, that's just kind of what it is. That's what, that's what these fans are. And, you know, we'll drive to you and they drive to us and it just works. And it's just, it's just unique. And I I don't know of anything else really kind of like it. Right. And I'm just glad I'm a part of it. And even if you did screw up a line on Danny, now he's got a story. It was like, this is where Andre Gower screwed up the line on the Gill Man right here. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So I add, you know, I add, I add to the list of my, you know, multi hyphenates. I am also now a, uh, a, an accomplished tattoo artist. Um, Not in any way, shape or form. With the documentary, you know, you're one of the executive producers, you're the director and you're one of the stars. That's that's making a visual love letter to the fans and the franchise itself. I mean, there was that 1970s um, Monster Squad TV series where it had had the Wolfman that not too, and, and the other Universal monsters that did, that last I think 13 episodes or whatever. And I don't know the tie-in between the two, but you know this one, your version is the one that sticks out for all of us. Um, when you sit there and, you know, people like Danny and then people that travel states across, 
and then going to London and seeing multiple generations just growing with you with the franchise. And I'm calling it a franchise because it's um it's a fan based franchise. It's not just one movie. I mean, you like you said, people made the t-shirts, people made their own memorabilia, people created their own fan fiction and fan art for mm-hmm. the for this film that they loved so much that it's a fan based franchise in that regard. What does that say to you? And then, you know, it's, Ryan touches upon it in a documentary. He's like, what, what are you, what are you talking about? You know, the movie that we made 19, 20 some odd years ago, people care now, you know, and then Ashley was five. So like talking to Ashley as an adult now, you know, it's a different situation because she was what, six, seven at the time. Yeah. I mean, I think we shot the movie when she was five and it came out when she was six or something. And, um, no, I mean, that's, that's that interesting kind of, um, I don't know. Did I interrupt your point? Like you were, no, 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 no. I'm just like going with it. Like, how does that make you feel after all this time? And like, what does it do for you personally? You know, I, it's, it's a, it's a great question. It's the question. And I, I don't know if I have the correct words to answer it with justice. And I think, you know, it's interesting because you mentioned like, you know, producer on it. I directed it. You know, I, I, I put the, I put the shoot together and, and I'm in it. I'm in it way too much. Um, you know, I, I fought with Henry on that a lot and he's like, dude, you are the, you're the leader of the monster world, which is this doc, but you have to be, and I know, but I don't, I didn't want this doc to be like super Andre centric. I wanted it to be about the other people and the impact and, and the fan stories, but you have to be in there somewhere and, and tell some of the story. I got asked that question like, Hey, we see you and we get everybody's story of the impact of what this kind of whole experience, including the movie they made and the, and the experience after and the resurgence of what it means to all them. But we don't get your answer to that question. And that was actually by Phil Noble Jr. from Fangoria. I was like, damn it, Phil, that's a really good question. And I'm not prepared except to say that the documentary is my response. That's the best I can come up with. I don't know how to describe, um, you know, I fancy myself halfway creative and I can write some good stuff. And, um, you know, there's, there's a great line in contact when, uh, Jodie Foster, Ellie's character goes, they should have sent a poet, you know, to describe, you know, what she's experiencing. And I, you know, I think I, I can write, but I don't think I'm the poet or the writer to express really what it is. It's, it's almost in, it's almost indescribable. It's certainly an intangible yet tangible feeling. And I think the only way to reconcile what was going on over these last few years is I, I'm, I'm, I'm task oriented or I'm focus driven or, um, you know, task mode. And I think I went into task mode to try to express what this whole dynamic means to me personally. And so I think I just put a whole bunch of people in a crew together, to try to make a movie to explain that. And I, I hope that suffices as an answer. And if you enjoy the doc, then maybe, maybe you'll get that. I just, I just don't, I just don't know how to describe it. I just, I, without sounding really, really lame. It's not lame because it's, it's a part of who you are and a part of your existence. 
and just the the fan service to you. I mean, I know you laughed at me the first time we talked for Baby Frankenstein, and I was just like, oh yeah, half my class was screaming. Wolfman's got nards. They're like half the class, whatever. Nobody saw the movie, but there were <laughs> you know there were enough kids in the class that saw it that knew the line, right? Um, okay, and so. that, and that's the interesting dynamic of what endures on it, and that's what I love the story. You know, I was just doing a podcast right before you and I you know got together tonight, and. You know, I had talked to these, I had talked to these cats before and he was like, no man, you know, remember I was talking about the playground and, you know, Monster Squad ruled and like, you know, we all knew it. I was like, there's no way. It was like a playground. It was like, okay, maybe you knew it. There's no way. He's like, no man. There, it was, it was a ton of us. Like Monster Squad ruled our neighborhood and the playground for that year. And like we competed with other groups and like we, you know, it was, that was the movie we talked about. And then so we talked about it tonight, uh, you know, earlier on their show and, I was like, he was like, no man, my whole playground, like I know, I know like five of those guys still. It's like, we're all still friends. And they're like, they've lost their mind when you were on our show. And I was like, well, let's go to the playground and hang out with those guys and just, you know, like shoot the shit, you know, and, and have some wings or something. And uh, he was like, uh, I said, I'm there, man. Let's go. Let's do it. Let's just hang out with these kids. I mean, not the kids in the school, but like the kids that are grown up now and, you know, and, and reminisce and, and, and see what they think because, I'm going to get just as much a kick out of their reaction and me being involved in something that they really, really dug than they are about hanging out with me. I bet you I get more out of it than they do. I dig it, man. Okay. I have to ask you this now. Yeah. You know, because we got to leave this on a high note. Okay. Uh, You know, we got sad because of Brent. We got happy. (laughs) We got emotional. And now you're leaving us with, with a high note of how, how important all this is to you. So Star Trek has Trekkies and Trekkers. All right. Uh, Firefly has the brown coats and each subdivision of fandom has their own thing. What are the fans of the monster squad called? They're in the goddamn club. <laughs> another, another brilliant line in the movie. Uh, and we're in the goddamn club. I dig it, man. Uh, I I think that's it. I think they just, I don't think they need a pronoun. I think they just, it's like we're in, I'm in the goddamn club. (laughs) And if you know what that means, then you're in too. And if you don't, you're not in yet. Well, then I'm in the goddamn club since uh, 1987. (laughs) Yeah. Andre Gower, where can we find you on social media, man? If we want to connect with you. Oh, uh, that would be awesome. Um, On Twitter, it's at Andre Gower on Instagram. It's, at Andre Gower official. Uh, and please follow, uh, Wolfman's Got Nards. The movie handles are at the squad doc on both of those. And also, uh, the squad doc.com. If you're just like a regular interweb user <laughs> and type in an address box, uh, you know, please follow updates, news, more stuff. There's a, there's a YouTube channel for the squad doc also, uh, that we're getting ready to post some new stuff on and some, and some cool, um, um, fun things. Uh, you know, we're also going to go out and, um, uh, we're going to have a cool little thing where, uh, you know, follow me so you can look for the, look for the call to action. I want you to send me your squad story at some point. So, you know, you can, you can, you know, Instagram me or, or put it on Twitter, take a little 30, 30 second, one minute video to tell me what your story is. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to try to repost that and, and, and put that on the YouTube channel and, and just share everybody's story. Cause that was one, something that was very important to me from the very beginning of this project. Cause I can't put everybody in the documentary and uh, I wish I could, I just can't because there's too many of you. 
but I want to try to find some way to connect and, and, and have you be a part of it all, whether that's you, you know, pre-ordering Wolfman's Got Nards on iTunes or ordering the Blu-ray on Amazon or just, you know, queuing it up on your, you know, um, you know, your, your VOD platform of choice, whether you're on Dish Network or Comcast or, you know, Fios, you know, whatever you get, you know, there's about two dozen of them that drops on the 27th. So, uh, please let me know where you're getting it. If you want to get it, if you're renting it, if you're downloading, if you're buying it, I want to hear from you, uh, and tell me your story and, uh, you know, keep an eye out for that. But, uh, I certainly appreciate everybody out there that's listening to this, that gives a rip. I appreciate, you know, RC and his show, you know, for having me back on and talking about fun stuff and letting me, you know, rant and go off on tangents. Well, it's always fun, man. We became fast friends real quick last time we talked. I'm glad we get to continue this going forward. Um, We still got to grab those beers soon, man. We're going to be heading into the uh, into the orange tier soon here in Orange County. So you know, it's apropos, and we become the second biggest uh, brewery county from San Diego. Yeah, and we've uh, we'll definitely have to do that. And, uh, so we'll, we'll connect and, uh, it's, my world's been a little crazy the last month or so. And then once that dies down a little bit and then, um, you know, but everybody, you know, support RC and his show and, and the stuff that he writes about and, 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 and the site and, you know, support all the other guests that he has on because you guys are the only reason we get to do what we do. And, um, some of us recognize that. Well, if you guys didn't create anything, we'd have nothing to write or talk about. <laughs> well, that's true. So maybe it's a good, nice symbiotic relationship. We'll go with that. <laughs> there you go, my man. So Wolfman's Got Nards out on VOD, DVD, Blu-ray, uh, satellite, you know, on your Apple Watch, whatever. Oct- Tuesday, October 27th. It's a fantastic documentary. Um, you, I can't say enough about it, and I can't say even more because I'll give away too many spoilers, and that's the worst <laughs> part about it. Well, feel free. I'll come back after it releases. If you want to talk about, you know, particular things, I'll come back anytime, man. You got it, man. All right. Thank you, Andre Gower. It's been a pleasure as always. Awesome. Thanks again.